Are you looking for truth from God's Word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Well, today we're going to start another topic today, and I believe I'm excited about it like some of you might be. We've been talking about character building, and since we have so many guests with us today again, let me tell you a little bit about where we are, and then we'll get right into the topic on initiative. We really believe that a Christian ought to have character in his life, and so we're trying to show what the Bible has to say about character building. And yet we know that in the secular arena, a lot of good educators out there are really jumping on a much-needed bandwagon of character building, especially in the public schools and in some of our business and professional communities. And so they're doing a lot to try to instill back into their people, the students and into their employees, character. And all of us are probably now living the result uh, of people who did not have character in their life and financially were hurting because of it. And I don't want to go too far there, but I do want to make it very real to us. And so we need to have character. But there's a difference between the character that a Christian would have than sometimes the character that the world would have. And I don't want to minimize that any character building is good. But the difference with Christians would be is, first of all, is that we have a greater reason to have character. Generally, for the world, it's so that you'd have a good reputation, you might get a promotion, you might get more money, people might like you. Generally, it's centered around you when you have good character. That's not necessarily bad because it does make the world go better. But it's still man-centered. When you talk about a Christian's character, authentic character coming from and out of a Christian, their motive is not so that they would merely get a raise or people would like them or so that things would go better in the world. They're doing it because they want to bring all glory and honor to the Lord, especially if that Christian is vocal about their faith and they have good character, then people really do see something different. But there's also another reason. We who know Christ as Savior, we have the character one, the Lord Jesus Christ living within us. So compared to the world, the world might have good character one day and then might not have good character the next day. They're more likely to have instability in their character, especially when they're challenged in their world. But a Christian has no need to be unstable when they too will be challenged to have poor character because they have the rock-solid person of Christ within them and they can yield to Christ. So it's really, watch this, his character that is lived out through us. So while I speak on character traits, most often every character trait will be illustrated from the life of Christ or God working in someone's life, but evidently you could see God in it. So that you would see that whom we're emulating, it would be the Lord Jesus Christ and his character that we would have. So today we're on ABC, ABCs of character building, character traits, and so we're on letter I, which would be initiative. In every good culture today, good big cultures, there's always going to be a high point, something for which they're known, something good where they might have been uh, contributing to uh, you know, humanity on planet Earth. If there was one trait that America has, I would really believe that it would be the trait of initiative, that they were the ones that were willing to go first. They were the ones who were generally willing to give first whether for themselves or also for the world, but they had that character trait of initiative. In fact, if you look at it carefully, you're going to find 
often that the word pioneer would come out of the word initiative. In other words, you will go first. You'll lead the way. So that's usually what America is all about. So for us, we have some pretty good models if I went through American history. Even way back when the pilgrims would come here, even before the pilgrims, people that were willing to come first to America or go first to America. But even with all of that, I'm sensing that there seems to be less and less of the American population that is willing to take initiative. And unfortunately, for those of us who know Christ as Savior, who has the one who has taken initiative living in us, Christ, we have somehow not tapped into the person of Christ and His Spirit. And there are many Christians today that don't have that character trait initiative as one of their hallmark character traits. In fact, what I'd like to do now is I'd like to give you the opposite of what initiative is. A definition of the opposite of initiative is seeing a need and letting someone else take care of it. Are you following me all right? Some of you can say, you know, I'm smart enough to know that something needs to be done around the house, around the church, around the job, around the school. But often we have, I wish someone would take care of that. Generally, our mind goes, when we see an issue, who's responsible for that? You'll see that a lot. And so they're always looking to put the finger on someone else to be responsible because we think the responsible one should be doing the job. And frankly, they should be doing the job. But we who are Christians are the ones that are not only going to lay it upon those who are responsible to do it, we're going to take the initiative. We're going to go first. And so we need to do that. I made a little list here of some of the ways that sometimes people don't show initiative. So listen with me as I go over a, a little shopping list and see if you might find yourself in there. It was easy for me to put this list together because I looked at areas in my life when I saw initiative not taking place. Here it is. For example, when we see trash on the road, around the neighborhood, in our yard, or in our church. An accident on the highway, an issue in the legislature, local or national. A visitor or a guest not connecting with anyone at home when we have people over to the house, or maybe even here in church. Discipline or reward of a child. We don't take the initiative to discipline when we should. The other parent should do it. Or we don't reward the child like we should. We don't take initiative. Or giving at church, or anywhere for that matter. <laughs> or how about something so mundane as garbage under the sink? I wonder if we went to your house right now, if there'd be piles of garbage under the top of that garbage can under the sink, wherever you might keep it, always thinking, well, the next person might take it out. How about a dirty car in the driveway? And maybe even pets that are left unattended. They're your pets, but someone else will clean the cat box, take the dog for a walk, bathe the, bathe the animal or whatever. And so I'm wanting our church to really allow Christ's initiative to so much come out from us that we would be known, if we had a word, we'd be known as pioneers. We will go first. We will be the one that will take the charge. We will do diligence. We will be the leader in doing that which is right, whether it's just telling the truth. We'll be the first one to tell the truth. We'll be the first one to get our hands dirty. And yea, sometimes we will be the first one to be persecuted because we'll be out in front of everybody when the verbal bullets are flying. I would pray that, and if you would really like to have a prayer to take with you when I'm out of town, 
Would you pray for me that I would lead the way and be a model for you as well? So what does initiative mean? I'll be honest with you, as I wanted to teach on initiative, I of course wanted to go through scripture, and I couldn't find the exact word initiative in any of the English Bibles. Now you might get it in some of the translations further down the road, the paraphrase maybe, but you're not going to find it. However, what you will find in Scripture, even though the Word is not there, it is absolutely, the Bible is dripping with people in the Old Testament, men and women, people in the New Testament, men and women, who exemplified initiative. It's all over the Bible. And then when you follow Christ as if you're in the shadows, wherever He goes, you're going to see Him taking initiative. And of course, it's easy for us to say, well, that's God, that's Jesus, He should do that. Well, that's true, but part of it is for us to model what he's done, as he's done that in his life. But, be that as it may, I did look up Funk and Wagnall's Dictionary, which you could pull off the shelf or maybe get it on your internet, and they define initiative as the power to take the first step. I like that, having the power to take the first step. The action of commencing, or I like this word, originating. Let it start with you and me. But I also like to go back to the first dictionary that came into the English language because it was put together by Noah Webster, who was a Christian. And so our very first American dictionary, it said this. So simple, five words. Do the first act. In other words, you take charge, you take lead. So taking that together and reading through Scripture every year for the last 40 years... I think I came up with a, a definition that works for me on initiative. And so this is the one that will be up hopefully on your screen. No, it will not be on the screen. Okay, so listen carefully. It's doing something first about a need without being asked. Doing something first about a need without being asked. All right, now that's pretty straightforward. You heard enough, so I think you have that down. But now what would be do, good to do would be to go into the life of Christ. And there were so many stories in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And then when I got into the Gospel of John, I looked at that, and it was just loaded with times where Jesus took the initiative. But I had to pick one story, so I went to the Lord, and I just said, Lord, just guide me which one would you impress upon my heart that I could be able to give maybe a double message in it, like two, two messages in one on your life. And this one just seemed to come to me, and I, I assume it's the Holy Spirit that led me. And so I'd like to give to you verses 1 through 9 of John chapter 5 and show you a little bit about initiative. Now, for those of you that are the more Bible student scholar here, let me make something very clear as I go through this story. I'm telling you ahead of time what it's going to look like before we get into it so you know what to look for as I'm going through it. I firmly believe that there are primary lessons in this. And if there are two primary lessons, the first lesson is going to be this. It is God, through Christ, sovereignly selecting one person to do something for the place is loaded with people, but it's demonstrating a God who has the right to be sovereign, to lay aside some needs, to single out one need, because he is God. So you're going to look at the sovereign grace of God. That's one lesson you'll learn. The second is the very fact that he is God and can instantly heal. He could speak and the worlds come into existence, and so we can talk all about the stars and the earth, but he also can look at one person and do one act and instantly that person 
could be healed. That's God. So, how do I get initiative in that? Now, this is where I think it gets really important and probably a little bit deeper. Since God, who is sovereign, lives inside of us, and that He will communicate to us through His Word, through prompting of the Spirit, through a lot of maybe wisdom that we have, we will have to look at many needs that are around us, and we will have to sovereignly choose a need. You can't hit every need that's out there. There's going to be a gazillion of them at work and at school and at home. How can you put it all together and still stay sane? You can't. So you're going to have to rely upon a sovereign God prompting you with wisdom to select what is the need you should meet based on a lot of things that we don't have time to talk about. Skill set, gifting, timing, prompting, people giving you an idea, etc. God using all of that. And the second is simply this, that when you're called upon to do a particular uh, show initiative, that you have the Lord inside of you that some of you might feel like, I can't do that, somebody else can. We try to do some mental gymnastics to get something done. That's the time we can say, Lord, it's not I, but you. I don't want to be natural. I want to be supernatural. I don't want to be normal. I want to be spiritual. And so, Lord, I'm going to rely upon you and your power to help me to meet that need. Now, listen carefully. Some of us can see things that can be done very easily, but we don't want to do it. Some of us can see things that need to be done, but we don't do it because we don't think we can. And what I'd like for us to come to a point in our Christian life, all of us, that we would be faith stretchers. You know what I mean by that? That we would go a little bit out of our comfort zone. Now, I don't mean to snap you like a rubber band, but I am talking about stretching you like a rubber band. And I believe that it's in those areas that we stretch, that we get to know God more because we're relying more on Him and we're more careful of what we do. But if we don't watch this, we will stay in our comfort zone and our Christian life could become very boring and very limited in our kingdom building. But anyway, let's go back to this. So we're going to look at this story that our friend Brian read so carefully to us this morning from God's Word. John chapter 5, verse 1 through 9. We look at three key thoughts. First of all is the location. What happened? Where was this? So I'm going to read it again to us here and pick out some thoughts. It says, After this, all the stuff that Jesus was doing earlier in chapter 4, was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem to that feast. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porches. Now let me just talk about that for a moment, just a little bit so you can capture what's happening. The word Bethesda means actually a place of mercy. So it's interesting where that the Lord is going to look upon people that have a particular need, probably deserve judgment, but he decides to heal one showing mercy. It's a place where mercy would be shown. Generally when mercy is shown, it's because a lot of people have needs for mercy. It's something they don't deserve, something they can't get themselves. So something that's going to touch them to make them better, grace and mercy is going to be the place. Bethesda was known for that. That's what the word Bethesda means. Then it talks about five porches. Five porches are like, when you think of a lanai, those of us who are local here, sometimes you think of a lanai as nothing more than like a back porch. But this porch was a covered porch. So it would be like if you have a lanai that's got a covering on it. And that would be good because in Jerusalem in the summer it can get very hot and these people that were so ill that we're going to hear about couldn't get around very well so they would try to crawl or get into the shade to be comfortable. So that's the place where Jesus now decides to go and to do this healing. 
Let's go a little bit further. It says, And in these porches, five of them, there lays a great multitude of... And let's pause for a moment. He didn't say there was one person there. He didn't say there was a multitude there. There was a great multitude there. So here's what we can take away from that. Wherever you might go, you might be around not one need, not a multitude of needs, but it could be a great multitude of needs that you have. Now what is interesting is this. Now stay with this thought. When Jesus was going to Jerusalem, he was going to a place where there was doing sacrifice and other activities. He went by Bethesda, which was generally on the way because it was a pool there where that they were getting ready for the sacrifice. It was also known as a sheep gate where the sheep would be taken for the sacrifice to take place. So generally, many people would go there. But he didn't have to enter that way. He could have gone another way. But he went the way where there was a lot of people that were really needy. So I'm looking at that and I'm saying, do I find myself hiding from people that have needs or issues that need to be my attention so that I can just go on with life? In other words, I can play a lot. I can go to the beach a lot, ball games a lot, shopping a lot. I can do a lot of stuff, a lot of needy people, but what I'm doing really doesn't constitute a need meet or I'm not meeting a need. And so what Jesus did is he went where there were people that were really needy. And these people were needy. And you're going to see what this was like in a moment. So it said there were sick people that were there. Didn't describe the sickness. Maybe they're defining sickness. They were sick because they were blind, lame, paralyzed. And so they had all sorts of problems in that particular area by the pool. They were waiting for the moving of the water. Now let me pause because we'll talk about the moving of the water in a moment here. But I want to say this part of it. Um, you're going to read in a moment where there's an angel, but it says here they were going where the moving of the water was. We know that this pool does exist. In fact, those of you that have been to Israel, I've been there three times now hosting tours, and while we were there, we would take them by this pool. It was known, people had seen it after the destruction of Jerusalem, but it was really identified officially in 1884, but it is that same pool, and you could see that. Water would come into this pool at certain times. There would be a surge of water and it would move. Some of us, very limitedly looking at it, it would be like going to the blowhole. You're watching this thing. There's a hole in this big old rock. Nothing's happening. And you say, well, there's supposed to be water piped up, pop popping up there. You look over here at your friends and sure enough, it pops up. You look back and it's gone again. Well, there's a surge of a wave that stirs that up. Well, similarly, in this particular pool, it's not a downtown swimming pool. It's a pool where water would come in, and when it did, it would then percolate and bubble. Now, that still might not fit for you. Those of you that are more mainland, you know that there are on the mainland different spots like Hot Springs, Arkansas, where they have springs. Those of you from Colorado know all about the wonderful Glenwood Springs that even brought Doc Holliday, that old western cowboy there, to get some healing from his problems. He would go to this pool because it would be moving. It would be mineral springs, etc. So they went there to be healed. So that's kind of the scenario. These people hung by this pool assuming you would be healed. Now let me make this very clear. I am not convinced merely that it was the medicinal thing of the pool. I don't think it was just the angel on this. I do believe that God can use man, like a doctor. God can use medicine, or he can use a flat-out miracle, like we're going to see in just a moment. The water never healed this guy. The angel that they said came never healed this guy. Jesus did. 
So God can use man, medicine, or miracle, but however he chooses to use it, watch this now, this is the key. God chooses to do it. It's not based upon how little or how much faith we have or what we do to kind of dance around to get God to heal us. He sovereignly does what he wants for his glory in his timing. So that being said, the place has this pool. It has water by this pool that now will be stirred up. Now in this passage, it says something interesting here. It says, for an angel came down and a certain time would stir up the pool and stirred up the water then. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was made well of whatever disease he had. Well, I did some research on this passage, and I don't want to get too deeply in this, but some of you like to chase these little bunny rabbits. Um, Was there an angel or wasn't there an angel? First of all, the original writings, the oldest copies of the original writings, the oldest copies of the original writings do not have any statement at the end of chapter 3, verse 3, or any of uh, verse 4 in it. But you do find where there's more copies a little bit later on and you start seeing it in there. But it is written differently than the others. When I was doing the language study on John here in his writing, you're going to find that there are certain words in that verse that John never used and that are never used anywhere in the New Testament except here. Later on, Bible scholars were talking about 400 A.D., which only, you know, 400 years after Christ, which wasn't long, uh, they were then saying that this was now not even put in the original. Some of the writers were adding to it. Now you're probably wondering, what is your take on this, Pastor? Well, I'll be honest with you. Who am I? I wasn't there when the Bible was actually put into the translation, etc. Can an angel do it? Yes. But because of the weight of the amount of evidence, I think it's not really likely. On the other hand, I will not die on that hill that angels can do things. We've seen angels do stuff in the Old Testament as well. So God can use an angel because they're a minister, or messenger from the Lord to serve us. So again, whether or not it's an angel, that angel still had a boss. Amen? And the boss was the Lord. So don't get hung up on whether or not this was an angel. What is interesting is Jesus never referred to the angel. And this man was never healed by any so-called angel. It's just kind of mentioned there as a side thought. Enough said about the angel. Let's talk about the problem. The problem is pretty simple. It says, Now a certain man was there who had an infirmity of 38 years. So what you could read into this, for initiative's sake, is that need was not a need that was once. It was a need that happened for 38 years. Now, follow me with this thought. There are some needs that someone needs help with. They have a flat tire, so you take initiative and you'll go to their house and help them change the flat tire. Okay? But that's a one-time event. They often do not have flat tires every week or every day. On the other hand, it might be something that you have around your house. That trash needs to be taken out nearly every day. That cat box needs to be changed often. You need to do certain things. So that need could last not once, twice. It could last all your life in your home if you're a child until you move out of your house. Only to find that when you get married, all those needs meet you at the door of your new home. Do you all agree with what I'm saying? So when you have that, those needs will always be with you. This man had a need. I'm so glad Jesus didn't say, someone ought to take care of this guy right here. I wonder who should, who's responsible for this guy. He can't get down to the water. Who's the, the, the guy that's got, he's blind, but he can still carry somebody who's withered down there. He didn't do that. He didn't try to place it on someone. 
And let me speak to those of us who are in leadership, that we have a staff. We have the propensity to have this, this struggle between how much do I do and how much do I delegate. Some guys delegate because they want to play the rest of the time, so they give it all away. Others don't delegate enough because they don't believe their staff can get the job done. So there is a delegation that needs to be done, but we have to be very careful. What is our responsibility and what can we delegate? I will say this in all management. Even though you have delegated a job, if it was a job that came to you or one that came from you, you're still responsible whether or not that, got, that job got done in a timely, excellent way. So it's still your project, even though the other person might touch it and own it. They're just borrowing it. It's still yours. So let me go on here, okay? So there's the problem, 38 years. Let's go a little bit further now. The practice, what happened here? Now this is what I want us to hone in on. So watch carefully. I'm going to open this up. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there. Circle the word saw, if you will. It's in bold on your little outline there. That means Jesus was alert to a need. He saw the need. You're listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Florida Bible College in beautiful Orlando, Florida. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It is the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. Or you can mail your gift to Make It Clear, P.O. Box 607-901, Orlando, Florida, 32860. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please send us an email at tellmemore@makeitclear.org. at Thank you, and remember to make it clear.